Father, we come to you because you are the one who possesses all wisdom and knowledge, the depths of which we will never be able to search out. But we ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us your truth through your word, that it would enrich us with that wisdom and knowledge that only you possess. And for the purposes of your kingdom, Lord, so that we might do what we must, what is required of us, and we we be able to speak clearly and lucidly the information that you possess and have given to us. So, Lord, we'll trust you for this, and by the power of your Spirit, be able to recall it. And we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would guide us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're into the new year. It was was time for me to do a couple of topicals, and I did that. And we needed to get back into the New Testament. And specifically, I wanted to go through one of the Gospels again as we begin this New Testament trek. This will be the third time that we're making it through the New Testament since we have started the church. Now, when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, of course, there are four Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. But there was this time at the end of Malachi that God did not speak to a prophet where the prophet would write down in a letter or in a book or on a scroll what his will was or what he had in mind or what was planned for the future. He did that all through the prophets of old. And then there was this uh, dearth, I think is the proper word. There is this doldrum. There is this time of hearing nothing from God. But it doesn't mean that God wasn't speaking between the Old Testament and the New Testament or that he wasn't moving or fulfilling what he said he was going to fulfill. In God's timing, it takes time for these things to be brought to fruition. So Matthew is the other side of that bridge that goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There's a thread that runs through the Old Testament that predicts a figure, a person, that will arrive in the future. They will emerge. This figure is spoken of in the book of Genesis. And it says that he will crush the head of the serpent. The book of Deuteronomy says that there will be this one prophet that will be raised up that's like unto Moses, and that the people, the Jews, should listen to him. Of course, we know from other scriptures that Jesus is the one who showed up, that is that prophet. He is also a king. He is also God in human form. He is deity. And so we want to pay attention to that when we get to the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the background of the New Testament as a whole, as I said, God was working during that time. He was speaking. He was working. He was devising how the history should unfold. And when you leave the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, you had the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, if you remember, there was the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted. And Babylon was the head of gold, or it was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the greatest king, the first king that was that great, that ruled over all the world. Then there was the Medo-Persian Empire, which represented the two arms of this statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of. Then you had this breastplate, or this torso area, and that would have represented Greece, at the time, and then you had the legs of iron, and that would have been the Roman Empire, and of course, the last one has not yet emerged, and that would be the feet mixed with iron and clay, and it has ten toes on it, which represents 
ten kings that will come up at the end times. And so during this period of time where you had Babylon, which was the head of gold, and then you had the Medo-Persian Empire, you had those two empires that were brought together as one and they ruled and reigned. Then you had this time where this guy named Alex came onto the scene. Alex was the son of Philip II, and Philip II, of course, gave birth to this guy, but this guy became known as Alexander the Great. And he conquered the entire known world at the time, and Philip II thought he would get his son a teacher as he was being raised up. And by the way, Philip was an aggressive warrior. That's who he was. And of course, Alexander, after him, he was exactly the same as his father, only he conquered the entire world. But he needed a teacher when he was about 13 years old. And so Philip went out and he got a teacher, and the teacher's name was Aristotle. And for three years, Aristotle taught him. And so Alexander was a bookworm. And he loved seeking out these philosophers which were out there. And he he just wanted to gain knowledge. He wanted to learn things that were out there. But his father was killed, probably by somebody from the Medo-Persia Empire that didn't like him. And so wiped him out. And Alexander decided to take revenge on the Turks, the Medes, and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. And he just went ballistic. And he conquered the world so quickly, it was even a shock to him that this was taking place. Now, this is all as a result of Daniel, chapter 7 specifically, where it talks about this statue in all these kingdoms. So during this intertestinal period, all these things are transpiring, which is leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. And so it took Alexander about 11 or 12 years to conquer the entire known world. And when he got some... Sometimes the information on this, uh, it disagrees as to specific dates or ages, but from what I can ascertain, he died at age 32. took him only about 11 or 12 years to conquer the entire known world at that time. He was disappointed that he didn't have anything else left to conquer, and so he'd sit around and he'd get drunk is what he'd do. And he went to this party and he drank a bowl of wine. Well, two weeks later, he died. And it's a mystery on why he died after drinking this bowl of wine. He got sick. Well, it seems as if to some, he was probably poisoned like his father. And he died at the tender age of 32, according, like I said, to the best estimates that are out there. Now, as he had this two-week period in there, they came to him and they said, so what should we do with your kingdom? Obviously, he was on his demise. And he said, Divide it or give it to the strong. And so he divided up, or they divided up, the four kingdoms to four generals, or they divided it up four ways to four generals. One was Cassander. He took over Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus took over Asia Minor and Thrace. Then there was Ptolemy, spelled with a P. The P is silent. He took over Egypt, and then there was Seleucus. And he took over Asia, including Syria. And so you see how it's getting ready for this next world empire. You had the breakup of uh, Alexander's kingdom. And after that, it was divided into fours. Now, when I'm talking about Ptolemy, Antiochus, Herod, Darius, Artaxerxes, there's not just one of each one of these guys. Like there's Artaxerxes the second, 
Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa. These are titles that are given to these individual rulers who are there. So there's many of them. And when you mention one like Antiochus, well, am I talking about Antiochus IV or Antiochus V or Antiochus III? And so I just want you to keep that in mind. When I mention these, we don't want to make a causal connection between these uh, historical figures of who we think they are. Because if you look at the family tree, it just spreads out all over the place. And these are simply titles. And so when this happened, uh, when this was broken up, there were two of the uh, communities, Ptolemy and the Seleucids. They kept on going back and forth and fighting. Ptolemy ended up being successful, and he took over the area of Syria. And he decided to go down into the area of Israel or Palestine, and he conquered that area. And, of course, this gave rise to a guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was up in the northern area of Syria, and there were some Jews who were rebelling down in Israel. And so it was this guy who came down and considered this sedition, and he just started ransacking the Jews and ransacked the temple. And this is the guy who set up the abomination which makes desolate. Now, some people will say the preterist view of the book of Revelation is this is the guy who has talked about the abomination of desolation. The only problem with that is it happened before Jesus showed up. And Jesus said, when you see the abomination which makes desolate, in other words, it's a future event, it cannot have happened in the past. It was just a forerunner for that which was to come in the future. Kind of like the forerunner Elijah coming for Jesus Christ. Well, who was his forerunner that came for Jesus before Jesus Christ? It was John the Baptist who came. And Jesus even said, this is Elijah if you can accept it. Now, will there be an Elijah that comes in the end times? I think probably so. It probably is going to be Moses and Elijah. The two that showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's going to be two prophets in the book of Revelation that show up, and they're going to prophesy, and they're going to be killed. But as we get into the book of Matthew, especially 24 and 25, we're going to get in depth with that. But these two kingdoms, Ptolemy, he was able to overcome a little bit, and Antiochus Epiphanes, he came to power, and he made this slaughter of this pig. And, of course, for uh, the Jews, a pig is an unclean animal. And after that, there was a new nation that had arised that came in, and they decided to take this guy out. And they put a yoke on his neck, and he thought he would go against the Romans, who is who it was. And the Romans came in and said... Ain't happening, buddy, and you were going to bow to us. And if I remember the story correctly, I don't have it in my notes here, that one of the Roman generals, he drew a circle around uh, Antiochus after they had defeated him. And they said, okay, before you step out of that circle, you're going to decide whether or not you're going to submit to Roman rule or you won't. You decide. <laughs> so if he didn't decide, they would. if he said, no, I'm not going to submit, they would have killed him right there. And so he goes, okay. I'm going to submit to that. Now, this happened, if you go back just a little bit, I digress. If you go back to Alexander, Alexander decided that he wanted to Hellenize the entire known world at that time, which meant to bring in a common language, which is Greek. What is the common language around the world today? It's English. It's, it's great for us. Well, that's what Alexander did back at that time. He made Greek the common language that was to be spoken in the entire known world. And this is because God wanted it that way. In this intertestinal period, it became so well known as a language 
there were these guys, 70 guys who were Jews, and they decided to come up with a translation into Greek of the Old Testament, and it's called the Septuagint. And when you find quotes in the New Testament, it is usually from the Greek Bible, the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, when you see these quotes taking place. So it isn't from a Hebrew Bible, it is from this translation that comes up. So he spread across all of the known world this Greek language at the time, and so everybody had this language in common. God set this up this way because the Messiah was going to be coming, and he wanted the people to be able to tell everyone throughout the entire world that had a common language. If you go over to places like Africa or down to South America, you'll have one country that may have 20 different dialects. But they all will speak usually one language. They'll have one language in common. Some places in Africa, you'll have several countries that they all speak French, but there's probably a hundred different dialects within two or three countries right there, but they all speak French. Or same thing with English. They'll all speak English. Or they'll all speak Arabic, depending on which region you're in. And so that was the purpose for the Greek coming in. God wanted the gospel to go all the way around the world. Then the Romans took over, and guess what the Romans did? The Romans built roads everywhere. Uh, the Via Maris, uh, it's this road of blood. You know, they had this road that went everywhere and they constructed it through the entire known world. Why? Because God wanted the message of the gospel to be carried through the entire known world in Greek. And it happened that way. Remember we talked about uh, the, the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, that it probably Paul penned it, but then it was Luke that probably wrote it out in Greek so that it would go to the entire known world at that time. But when it gets back to this idea of why did God set it up this way? Was he working? Indeed, he was working. He was setting up common language. He was setting up the roads. You know, in our country, when it came to, and it, this actually began in Germany with uh, Hitler, of all people. You had the Autobahn. You know, where you would have a curve on a highway where you could take it at a high speed. I forget the angle of the curve. It couldn't be more than 20% or something like that. They had all of these criteria. Well, that super highway, they saw that in Germany and they said, we can do that here in the United States. As a result of that coming into the United States, we have populated the entire continent from east to west. I mean, in a big way. And so God, it was God's plan that this country should be formed and that all the people should be across the United States. God has blessed this country. The same thing happened back then. God wanted Christendom to be carried through the entire known world. And as a result, the gospel made it all the way back to Rome. Now there are some ships that made it back there, but the gospel made it all the way through the known world at that time. And the very uh, heart of the country or the uh, kingdom of Rome got evangelized. And that's where you got the Catholic Church. And so this is how God was working to bring about the gospel to the entire world. And because the Catholic Church came in, and back then it was just the church universal. That's what Catholic means. It's universal. They didn't have all the problems until they actually became the official religion of Rome. That's where you elevated the pastor to this priest. And the priest was uh, getting rich off of this and corruption was coming in and you could buy your way into heaven. It was just a lot of corruption. Now, if you give Calvary Chapel enough time, there will be corruption. That's just the nature of who we are. Once I'm dead and gone, Lord willing, this church keeps on going. Somebody could come in. 
that could start teaching a false doctrine and do it only for monetary gain and wield power. There are churches in Lakeside that do that. And so we want to make sure that we are continuing on the right course that God intended when the gospel originally went out as described to us by Paul. And so this is what was going on in the intertestinal period. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets. But there's a few more things that take place inside of this intertestinal period. Of course, we know that the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And because of that, there was this dispersion of the people uh, called the diaspora is the theological term. And all these Jews went to all these different countries. Of course, God preserved them in their culture, in their race, in these different countries, and he intended to bring them back. Of course, we've talked about this. We talked about this last week. But the temple was destroyed, and as a result of the temple being destroyed, the Jews had nowhere to meet. So what they did when they were in exile is they built these places called synagogues, like churches, and they'd show up to the synagogue. It was called a meeting place, a synagogue, and they would get together and they would discuss the things of God. They would discuss his law and what they're supposed to be doing and what they're not supposed to be doing. And at this time, it gave rise to certain individuals. These certain individuals were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They developed during this period of time these particular sects. And then the Talmud, the oral interpretation of what the law meant, that came in as well. And during this Babylonian captivity, the Jews wanted to make sure that they didn't repeat the sins of their fathers. So a group of them decided that they would become the set-apart ones or the Pharisees. This is where the Pharisees came from. And the Pharisees were the arch enemy of Jesus. And yet they should have been his most adamant friend, the, the one who is completely devoted to him if they would have recognized the scriptures. But there were also these individuals called the scribes. And the scribes were experts in the law. They knew every single passage. They would have most of it memorized. And they'd be able to tell even the Pharisees or the high priest, they'd be able to tell them, well, this is what the law says. For instance, when the Magi came to Jerusalem, they probably conferred with the scribes. So where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Well, let me tell you where he's supposed to be born. And they would know exactly where to go in Scripture. They were, quote-unquote, the lawyers. They were the attorneys. They were the ones that would sit in if there was a a uh, law case to be uh, adjudicated. They would say, well, this is what the law says. They were the lawyers. So you had the Pharisees, the ones who were set apart. You had the lawyers. Then you had the ruling class, the priesthood. And they have always been around, but they were of the sect known as the Sadducees. They were Sadducees because they didn't believe in a resurrection or in angels. And if you go to Matthew chapter 22, they tried to trap Jesus in the question of one man, if he married this woman and then he died and he had seven brothers because according to the law, the next brother in line was supposed to marry that woman or the first brother and he they give him this scenario where all seven brothers married this one woman and this one woman never had any children so they put it to jesus so who will she be married to when she gets to heaven without we've got him now He's not going to be able to answer this. And he goes, you err because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. There is neither marrying nor given in marriage in heaven. Who are we married to in heaven? Jesus Christ, the book of Ephesians chapter 5. We are the bride of Christ. And so if we're married to somebody else, 
It's adultery all over the place. And so we're not in, you know, he just let them have it. And so these Sadducees, these Pharisees, and these scribes who were there, they all really came to solidify their positions during this intertestinal period. And the corruption of power and all of that that was going on, it was as a result of, I would say, God not speaking, but that's not true. He was still moving and he was still speaking. It was because the sinfulness of men, but it set it all up for the reign of the Messiah or the presentation of the Messiah and his later reign. So we had the road system, we had the Septuagint, which was made, we had the Talmud, which was put into place, we have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of these guys. But now when we look at the New Testament and we see four Gospels, <clears throat> when, and I've used this illustration before, when you have a small child and they're going to do something that is wrong. Do you tell them one time, no, don't do it? How many times do you tell them? <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, you start, don't, don't, no, stop it, stop it. You know, you do those types of things so they're getting the connection. No means no. Don't go forward or yes means yes. And that's how we train children in the art of understanding language. We repeat you know, Billy Graham uh, talked about it was either uh, being able to follow God or understand his word or memorize it. He, he said there are three keys to doing this. He said repetition, repetition, and repetition. And, and so if you go through these things in the word over and over and over, it starts to sink in. It's like um, a piece of cloth hanging in some dye, just a little tip of it. If the little tip of it is in the dye, eventually the entire cloth gets saturated. And just as a side note, I want to say a side note here. I've mentioned this previously, but if you guys have a smartphone or if you have a iTouch or an iPod, you need to get the scriptures on audio. Uh, you know, I... I want to make it through the Bible again this year, you know, maybe a couple of times. And I have downloaded, uh, I like to listen to the NIV, but it's the latest NIV. And I don't really agree with some of the translations, but I can pick them out when they come through. For instance, um, when God created a male and female, what did he call them? Man, right? But in the new NIV, the 2011 version, which is audio, it calls them mankind or some other places that uh, in the New Testament where God designates the masculine pronoun of, of man, it is man, they say people. And I'm going, you know, that just, that kind of grates on me a little bit because I know what God meant. Man means man and woman because woman was taken out of man, woe, man, Right? They're both man. And so I listen to that on the audio and I, you know, I pick it out and go, oh, that's, that's not the right interpretation of that particular verse. But it's helping me. It's sharpening me. And I have been able, and just since December, I'm through the New Testament already. And I'm going to make it through the Old Testament probably within the month of January. And imagine if I can do that every month. 
you know, my head will be swelling from all the information in there and it'll have to be tilted back up and um, God will have to humble me because I have all this knowledge and I have this pride and that. Please, God, don't. You know, you, you go through that type of thing. But you need the information, especially if you're not reading it. Now, some people will say, but I need a book in front of me. Okay, put the book in front of you. But I'm telling you, you cannot make it through the New Testament that quickly. And I do it just as I'm doing stuff. I'm listening to it as I'm doing stuff. And if you have your smartphone and you have Bluetooth headphones, you put the Bluetooth headphones in there and you click it and you, well, you're not supposed to put it in your pocket, right? Whatever you do with the phone. I put mine in my pocket or I put mine in my pouch and I listen to it. I'm just going through this all this New Testament stuff and going, wow, yeah, I forgot about that and that's good. I need to remember that. So I want to encourage you guys, buy it download it, listen to it. If you do, the next step is putting it into practice. But if you don't have it within you, you won't be able to put it into practice. So that's just the side note that I'm dealing with the New Testament. Now, there is the New Testament that has the four Gospels in it. And we have these four different versions. Now, you might ask, why four different versions? Well, do you think God wanted us to get it? Well, yeah. He did, and it came from four different perspectives. Like, for instance, how many angels were sitting at the tomb after Jesus resurrected? One gospel has two, another gospel has one. Are they wrong? No, it's just from the perspective of the individual. He remembered there was one, but there were two. And and so... Because of these differences, they are able to discern what the truth actually is. You know, to fill, in, fill it in. I'm like, Legion, how many guys were there? Was there one or was there two? There were two, but all we know is Legion, right? And, and so you read these different accounts in the scriptures, but it fills in some of the blanks. And, of course, we have the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they contain a lot of the same stories. Not necessarily in chronological order, but they have the same stories. Matter of fact, it's the same wording in a lot of them. Because of that, the scholars say, you know, they must have been drawing from a common document to write Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they even gave that document a name, even though they don't know that it exists, but that must exist because they drew from the same document. Now, maybe you guys know about this. Do you know what it's called? Think of Star Trek Voyager and this all-knowing being. What was his name? Q. That's right. His name was Q. That's what they've called this. They've called this document, which doesn't exist, but they think existed. They call it Q. I just gave you a little of the theological background, things you learned in seminary. It's like, okay, I can toss that to the side. Now, you can do whatever you want to with it, but these are synoptic gospels. And you can actually buy books. I have a book that lines up the stories in the synoptic gospels exactly across from each other whatever the stories are, and then it makes reference to where those things are located. And so you've got a really complete picture if you put all three of those things together. And we'll do that when it comes to eschatology and we get to Matthew chapter 24 and 25. We're also going to look at Luke chapter 21. We're also going to look at Mark chapter 13 because all of those things tie together and you get a complete picture with that. And then there's the gospel of John. The gospel of John deals with the deity of Christ. And so God said these four gospels are necessary. Now the difference is in some of these 
Gospels. I'll get to in a minute, but I want to explain to you the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, who was the Old Testament written by? It was written by Jews. That's it. They were the ones that were entrusted with the word of God out of all the peoples on the earth. It was given to Jews. Who wrote the New Testament? Christians. Most of them were Jews and they became believers. But like Luke, he was a Greek. He was never a Jew. Now, with these guys who wrote it, do you know how many authors there are in the New Testament? I would say there's eight. Some people disagree about the book of Hebrews. I still think it's Paul uh, that wrote the book of Hebrews. But there's eight authors in the New Testament. But there's 40 authors total, or over 40 authors total, for the entire Bible. So you subtract that, you have about 32 authors in the Old Testament. So you have a lot of authors in the Old Testament. You only have about eight in the New Testament. You have 27 books in the New Testament, or 27 letters. And in the Old Testament, what does that make it for the Old Testament if there's 66 books total? It's 39 books in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written, or the entire Bible was written, over about a 14 or 1500 year period. The Old Testament goes to about 12 or 1300 years in which that was written, over a millennia. In the New Testament, it was less than a generation. It happened really quick, or really quickly, is how that was written. So it was fast, it was immediate, like the Gospel of Mark talks about being immediate. It it just came on the scene right away after the revelation of Jesus Christ. But all of that other stuff, it took so much time to just build it up and deliver it and pile it together and all of these things. And so see, these are some of the differences. And in the Old Testament, you maybe have heard this, in the Old Testament concealed and the New Testament's revealed, the information about the Messiah and everything he would go through was concealed in the Old Testament, but it was hard to understand because they didn't have the Holy Spirit illuminating this, what was to lie ahead. And the prophecies that Daniel got in the Old Testament, some of them he had to seal up. We don't know what they are. But others, it just caused him to be sick, physically sick, that he saw these things. And he'd go, what's... What's going on here? And so in the Old Testament, a lot of these truths are concealed. But in the New Testament, it's revealed. But you know, in the Old Testament, like in Proverbs chapter 30, it talks about the Son of God in Proverbs. And that portends, or it points forward, I should say, to the advent of Jesus Christ, his first advent. And the Jews, I I remember listening to a study about this, how somebody was explaining the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs and saying that God has a son. Tell me his name if you know it. And the name of his son is the exact quote that's in there. And the Jews started getting mad when they were being told this by a Christian evangelist because their rabbis hadn't told them that God had a son, which is listed in the Old Testament. And it points to Jesus Christ. So Jesus is there in the Old Testament. He shows up, but he's revealed in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have general revelation that God exists. In the New Testament, you have special revelation, which is Jesus Christ is that special revelation from God. So these differences between the Old and the New. Remember, Matthew is the end of the bridge that comes over from the Old Testament. And I'm going to explain that a little more as we get to there. So in the Old Testament, it's concealed. In the New Testament, it's revealed. Or the Old Testament contains God's ultimate plan for salvation. And the New Testament explains God's ultimate plan for salvation so this is the difference between the old testament and the first book and the rest of the new testament now at least oh let's go on with this now 
Why four Gospels? <clears throat> I briefly mentioned this. There is a more complete account. You can cross-check and you can verify the contents of the Gospels, you know, of the stories that are in there. And by the way, these short little stories that are listed, these different things, if you go to seminary, they'll call them pericopes is what they'll call them. That's just a little note you can stick, stick to the side. But also, God said in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, if there's something to be adjudicated, how many witnesses do you need? Two or three reliable witnesses. How many do we have in the Gospels? Four. God says, I'm not only going to give you two. I'm not only going to give you three. But you have four reliable witnesses. And these guys believed it so much, they were willing to go to their death. Except for John, it is not believed that he was martyred. But the rest, they were all martyred. They were all taken down, so to speak. And so that's why there were four Gospels. Now, what does gospel mean? It means good news. And this is a problem in the church today. Uh, It's rampant. Good news, if there's good news, well, what's the bad news? And the church doesn't like to talk about the bad news. They kind of say, well, we'll get to it. You know, we just, we don't want to offend somebody because then they might not come back. If you go to church and they're teaching correctly, everybody is going to be offended at some time. I promise you, if I haven't offended you yet, just wait. Just remain in here and I, at some point, will offend you by something that I say. And it it can't be avoided because the gospel, it says, number one, the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. But to those who are not perishing, those who are saved, it attacks our pride. It attacks our flesh. And we don't like that. And we want to justify our behaviors. And when scripture says, no, can't justify that, that's wrong and deserving of death. So what do you think about that? You know, and that's kind of how the scripture is brought to us. And we go, I don't like that. I want to rebel against that. And so that's the problem with the good news and the bad news. Most churches, you ever hear of a seeker-friendly church? A seeker-friendly church is where you go in and you never hear about sin, death, punishment, hell. And you can't preach the good news without the bad news. For instance, what was big during the 80s? It was self-esteem, right? You are so good. Oh, you didn't spell that right. That's okay. You'll get it. No, you won't get it. Oh, you don't need to write down a definition of that word. It'll be okay. You'll get it. No, you won't. You'll end up producing dummies. And so they have to go through the hard work of learning as a child going through school, right? Well, the same thing applies to us as believers. We have to understand what the scripture is talking about. Are we good people? There is none righteous, no, not one. Aren't you a nice person? No, you are evil and wicked. And given the opportunity, you would be surprised the evil you would perpetrate upon humanity if you just had the chance. That's what scripture says. And God turns to us and says, not only that, I'm going to kill your body because it's so worthless. I'm going to give you a good one. I'm going to change the whole thing. Not only that, but your attitude stinks too. I'm going to give you a new attitude. And I'm going to place my spirit inside of you. So how does that make you feel? And you look at that and go, terrible. Good. It is more blessed to go up to the house of the morning than to go to a place of rejoicing and feasting. It's better to be content with a small morsel than to have abundance and strife. I mean, that's what the scripture says. And to give that kind of news, I could be to Tony Robbins, couldn't I? 
of destruction, not of lifting up people and saying, oh, it's all wonderful, you're good, and God loves you. It's all true, but you have to give the bad news before you can give the good news. And so if you ever want to go out and witness, that's why they have the good person test. No one is good. Remember, Jesus said, why do you call me good teacher? There's only one who is good, and that is God. Of course, that was a leading question because Jesus is God, and he's good. If the guy would have realized that, the rich young ruler. But going on with this, we come up with Matthew. And how does Matthew begin? Matthew begins with this genealogy. Aren't you excited to go through the genealogy? <laughs> I, I just, I'm getting shaky because I'm just thinking about this genealogy going through it. As you go through this genealogy, it's interesting to note a few things. There are three sections, as we'll get to them, three sections of 14. Three sections of 14 divided by two is six sections of seven. How many days in the week are there? Seven. Is there some kind of connection here? I don't know. Well, what's the number of man? Six. What's the number of the Antichrist? Six, six, six. How long were the Israelites in the wilderness? Four. You know, how many days till Pentecost? From, from um, I'm drawing a blank here. It's 50 days. It's, Pentecost is 50 days from Passover, right? You see all these numbers popping up in Scripture, and some people make an error, and they start writing about numerology in the Bible. And they start making these diagrams and they go through with all these numbers and everything. There's no question. The Bible has this numeric sequence going through it. And it is a mystery to us how it is set up. Some things we know, like uh, the number of man is six, the number of completion is seven, the number of new beginnings is eight, and you know the 40 days in the wilderness, and Jesus was tempted for how long? 40, you know, there's, there's some kind of connection going on there, but we want to be careful about drawing distinctions. And people write books and try to make money on this stuff. Now, I, I do want to say this just as a side note. God is so complex, we can't even get into the mind of God and who he is. And I'm going to go back to a few things here in a minute. But I want to make sure that we understand a couple of things concerning these numbers. For instance... Where did we get calculus? Did it exist or did we make it up? It existed. We discovered it. What about geometry? Euclidean geometry. Did we make it up or did we discover it? We discovered it. What about algebra? Dreaded algebra. <clears throat> we did not make it up we discovered it just as Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 and he supposedly discovered the new world and all of that. We discovered as human beings mathematics. Do you know that the entire universe is governed by mathematics? Do you know the very number of trees in a forest is determined by an algorithm? There, there's going to be a certain number of trees in a forest. Even their distance between them is determined by mathematics. If you talk to a, mathemat- a doctor in mathematics, he will just start going off on this kind of stuff. Even the very atoms 
that make up our body are governed by mathematics. Our whole world is governed by mathematics. If you look at the top of Saturn, there is the Aurora Borealis, which is on Saturn, but that is in a geometric pattern. If you've ever looked at it, the Aurora Borealis in the satellite views, I just saw a satellite fly by Jupiter. It's just an incredible uh, image. But this idea that mathematics, they, mathematics govern every single shape which is out there. For instance, Daryl, watch this. Look at that. Now, I brought these up to you a year or two ago. You know what that is? It's a snowflake. You remember, right? Show another one. Look at that. That's, of course, one from Krypton. (laughs) But go to the next one. Look at that. Now, that's all governed by mathematics, and that's smaller than the eye can see. You know, when it comes to Mary and the virgin birth and all of that, and it's just incredible. And we're supposed to consider that Jesus was fearfully and wonderfully made inside the womb and she did not know a man. And all this, all these things that we have in our universe are so wonderful and so big, we can't even begin to grasp what is going on. God just reveals a tiny smidgen to us. And that's what he's doing when it comes to the book of Matthew. It is so complex and it is so deep and we have to mine this stuff when we get into genealogies. Why did he do it? Seven, 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 seven. I don't know, but he did and there's a mystery there and we will have this stuff revealed to us. And, and if you start going through that genealogy, you know, it's like um, there was this one pastor, <coughs> Chuck Missler. Remember him? He would talk about the uh, constellations which are up there. And there's actually a story in the constellations. And it deals with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God set that stuff up there. If you look up in the stars, you don't see Orion and his belt and all that. You see stars. I see three here, one there, one here. Beetlejuice up here and this one down. And that's all I see. But there is a mystery behind all of that. And the turning of the galaxies, it's all mathematics. It's all deep. It's all wonderful. Even the genealogies. After this, we may go through First Chronicles and just read all the names that are in there. It'd be so wonderful, wouldn't it? Let's go back. I digress. And so you get into these Gospels. And the gospel, for instance, Matthew presents Jesus as king or sovereign. And it was written to the Jews. The Jews loved scripture and they also would not listen to anyone who was not a Jew. So Matthew had to write something for the Jews. And about 13 times, he says in there more than the other gospels, he says, according to the prophet. And so when he says that, or according to the word of the prophet, something along that line, it's because he's telling the Jews to remember the Old Testament. And so that's the context which we have with Matthew. Matthew is a Jew. Matthew, what was Matthew's Hebrew name? Levi. Levi. That's right. He, no, he didn't wear jeans back then. He wore a robe. But this idea that he is a Jew, he's Levi, he comes from the Levitical priesthood line, but he was a tax collector, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Mark presents Jesus as a servant, and it was written to people like the Romans, because they were ones, let's snap, snap, let's get to it here. We have rulers, we have servants, and whenever you read the book of Mark, you will see the one word that pops up over and over and over. It is immediately, 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 and that's what the Romans were into. Now, let's do this now, let's conquer this now. They were not into waiting, and so they They were going to look at Mark through that lens, and that's why it was written. And then there is Luke, who presents Jesus as the Son of Man, being a human, and he wrote it to 
the Greeks. The Greeks love culture, beauty, ideas, happiness could be found in the pursuit of truth. Luke fills this book with insights, interviews, songs, and details that fascinate the inquiring mind. And so if you're a Greek, you're into like Aristotle, right? You, you Plato, you want to know what these guys, well, let's go a little bit deeper. And Luke's writing out all this information. That's who it was for. And then, of course, you have John. Who was John written to? Everybody. Because everybody needs to know about God. God is Jesus Christ in human form. And so these are truths which are revealed here. You have the revelation of King Jesus. You have the rejection of King Jesus. And you will have the return of the rejected King Jesus to reign. It was in this um, genealogy that we have here. You have, it's broken down into three sections. Like I said, you have the time of the patriarchs. You have the time of the monarchy. And you have time of subjection. And I wrote that as time of the patriarchs, time of the potentates, and time of the persecution. That's these three levels of the genealogy, which is listed there. And it goes from the first one is chapters 1 through through 6. The second part of this, time of the monarchy, is verses 7 through 11. And the time of subjection is verses 12 through 16. And so, we're going to read the first verse as we're running out of time of the book of Matthew, chapter 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now, I'm going to end on this, and we'll have to pick it back up next week. And as we're rolling through here, it's going to take some time. It's going to take several weeks to get maybe several months. Maybe we'll make it by next Christmas. Who knows? Uh, But we're going to take our time going through this. Why did he write this first sentence the way that he did of the line of David? Who would the Jews be looking for as a king, as Messiah? Somebody who sits on the throne of David. It is a prophecy that was given. So the mind of the Jew, they would say, oh, this is genealogy of Jesus who comes through the line of David, who would be the king and the Messiah who has been foretold to arrive at the earth and provide forgiveness of sins and be ruler over the entire earth and restore the glory. So that's immediately what the Jews would want. Now, why else would the genealogy come up? We do this Ancestry.com. I've been thinking about doing that uh, 23 thing where you send in your DNA and they tell you where you're from uh, as far as genetically speaking. Wait, we have communion today. I got to stop. You know, I just, I get really excited about this stuff. I have to apologize. What we're going, if the worship team could come up. What we're going to do is we're going to receive communion and Eric is going to come up and pray for that communion. But as they're passing it out, I want you to hold on to it. And Eric will explain why we are receiving communion. What's the purpose in this? And and we'll bring more insights with the Gospel of Matthew uh, next week. But at this time, if you guys would come forward and pass that out, that'd be great.